0: As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.
1: This is Voices in AI, brought to you by Giga Home. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Norman Sadeau. He is a professor at Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science. He's affiliated with SciLab, which is well-known for their seminal work in AI planning and scheduling, and he is an authority on computer privacy. Welcome to the show. You know, Carnegie Mellon has this amazing reputation in the AI world. Uh, you know, it's, it's arguably second to nine. You know, there, there are a few university campuses that seem to really... You know, there's Toronto and uh, MIT and uh, and Carnegie Mellon. And what in Carnegie Mellon's case, how did AI become such a central focus?
2: Well, uh, we uh, this is one of the birthplaces of AI. Uh, and so the people who founded our computer science department included Herb Simon and uh, Alan Newell, who are viewed as uh, two of the four uh, founders of of AI. And so they uh, contributed to the uh, uh, early research in that space. They helped frame many of the problems uh, that people are still working on uh, today. And they helped recruit also many more faculty over the years uh, that have contributed to uh, making Carnegie Mellon as the place that many people refer to as being the number one place in in, in AI here in the US. Not to say that there are not other many good places uh, out there, uh, but CMU is uh, clearly uh, a place where uh, a lot of the leading research has been conducted over the years. Whether you're looking at uh, autonomous uh, uh, vehicles, for instance, I remember when I came here to do my PhD back in 1987, uh, there was research going on on autonomous vehicles. Obviously, the vehicles were a lot clumsier than they are today, (laughs) not moving quite as fast. Uh, But uh, uh, there's a very, very long history of of AI research here at Carnegie Mellon. The same is true for language technology, the same is true for robotics, Uh, you name it. Uh, There there are lots and lots of people here who are doing truly amazing things.
1: You know, when I stop and think about, you know, 99.9% of the money spent in AI is for so-called narrow AI, trying to solve a specific problem, uh, often using machine learning. And then, but the, the thing that kind of gets written about and is shown in science fiction is general intelligence, uh, which is a, you know, a much more problematic uh, topic. And when I stop to think about who's actually working on general intelligence, right? So, uh, I don't actually get too many names. There's open AI, Google, but I often hear you guys mentioned Carnegie Mellon. Would you say there are people in a serious way thinking about how do you solve for general intelligence?
2: Absolutely. Uh, and so going back to our founders again, uh, you know, Alan Newell, uh, you know, was one of the first people to develop uh, what he referred to as a, a general uh, theory of, of, of cognition. And uh, obviously that theory has evolved quite a bit and, and uh, it didn't include anything like neural networks, or, uh, but uh, uh, there's been, a, uh, you know, a, a long history of efforts on working on general AI here at CMU, and you're completely true uh, that uh, as a, uh, an applied university, also uh, we've learned that uh, just working on these long-term goals uh, is not necessarily the easiest way of <laughs> to secure funding, and that it really pays to also have uh, shorter-term objectives along the way, things that you can solve, solve accomplishments that uh, can help motivate more funding coming your way, and so. Uh, it is absolutely correct that many of the AI efforts that you're going to find, and that's also true at Carnegie Mellon, will be focused on more narrow types of problems. Problems where we're likely to be able to make a difference in the short to mid-term, rather than just uh, focusing on these uh, longer and, and loftier goals of building general AI. But we do have a number of researchers also working on, on this uh, broader vision. of
1: the- And if you were a betting man... And somebody said, do you believe that general intelligence is kind of an evolutionary, uh, you know, that basically the techniques we have for narrow AI, they're going to get better and better and better and bigger data sets, and we're going to get smarter, and that it's gradually going to become a general intelligence? Or are you of the opinion that general intelligence is something completely different than what we're doing now? And what we're doing now is just kind of like simulated intelligence. We just kind of fake it because it's so narrow into task. So do you think general AI is a completely different thing or we'll gradually get to it with the techniques we have?
2: Right. So AI is, has become such a broad field uh, that it's, it's very hard to answer this question in, in one sentence. Uh, you have uh, techniques that have come out under the umbrella of AI that are uh, highly specialized and that are not terribly likely, I believe, to contribute to a general theory of, 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 uh, of AI. Uh, and then you have, I think, uh, broader techniques that are more likely to contribute uh, to uh, developing this uh, higher level of, of functionality that you might refer to as general AI. Uh, and so I would certainly think that uh, a lot of the work that has been done in, in deep learning, in neural networks, uh, those types of things are likely over time right with obviously a number of additional developments that uh people have uh, a number of additional uh inventions that people have to come up with but i would imagine that has a much better chance of getting us there than uh, perhaps uh, more narrow yet uh, you know equally useful uh technologies that might have been developed in fields like uh you know, uh, scheduling and and uh, and perhaps uh, planning and perhaps uh, other areas of that type, where uh, there's been amazing contributions, but it's not clear how those contributions will necessarily lead to uh, a general AI over over the years. So,
1: mixed mixed answer, but hopefully. Mm-hmm. So, one... Go ahead. You, know, you, you just made passing reference to AI means so many things, and it's such a broad term that may not even be terribly useful. And, and that comes from the fact that intelligence is something that doesn't have a consensus definition. So nobody agrees on what intelligence is. Do you, is that meaningful? Like, why is it that something so intrinsic to humans, intelligence, we don't even agree on what it is? Like, what does that tell? What does that mean to you? Well, it, it's fascinating, isn't it?
2: That. Uh... You know, there used to be this joke, and maybe it's still around today, that uh, AI was whatever it is that you could not solve. And as soon as you would solve it, it was no longer viewed as being AI. Uh, so uh, in, in the 60s, for instance, uh, there was this uh, a program that people still often talk about called ELISA. Uh, that was Weizenbaum's uh, simple, chatbot. Right, exactly. Simple uh, Rogerian therapist, right? Uh, basically a collection of rules that was very good at sounding like a human being. Effectively, what it was doing is it was paraphrasing what we would tell you and say, "Well, why do you think that?" <laughs> and it was uh, uh, realistic enough to convince people that they were talking to a human being, while in fact they were just talking to a computer program. And so, uh, if you had asked people who had been fooled by the system whether uh, you know they were really dealing with AI, they would have told you, "Yes, uh, this is this has to be AI." Obviously, we're no longer believing that uh, today, and we. Uh, you know, place the bar a lot higher when it comes to ci but but there is still that, uh, that uh, tendency to think that somehow intelligence cannot be reproduced, and surely if you can get you know, some kind of uh, uh, you know, computer whatever it might, whatever sort of computer you might be talking about to emulate that sort of functionality or to produce that sort of functionality then surely this cannot be intelligence, it's got to be some kind of a trick, right? Uh, but uh, obviously, if you also look over the years, we've gotten, to, uh, we've, we've gotten computers to do all sorts of tasks that we thought perhaps was, were going to be beyond the reach of these computers. And so I think we're making progress towards uh, emulating many of the activities that uh, you know, would traditionally be viewed as being part of, of human intelligence. And, and yet, uh, as you pointed out, I think at the beginning, uh, there is uh, a lot more to be done, right? So, common sense reasoning, uh, general intelligence, those are the more elusive tasks, just because of the diversity of, of uh, you know, the, 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 the versatility that you need to exhibit in order to truly be able to reproduce that functionality uh, in a scalable and general manner. And, and that's obviously the big challenge for, for research in AI over the years to come. Are we going to get there or not? I think that eventually we will. How long it's going to take us to get there? I wouldn't dare to predict. Uh, but I think that at some point we will get there. At some point we will likely build, uh, and we've already done that in some fields, we'll likely build functionality that exceeds the capability of human beings. We've done that with uh, facial recognition. We've done that with uh, chess. Uh, we've done that actually in a number of different sectors. We might very well have done that. Uh, we're not quite there, but we
1: might very well at some point get that in, in there in the area of autonomous driving as well. So you mentioned, you know, common sense. And, and it's true that, you know, every Turing test capable chatbot I come across, I ask the same question, which is, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And I've never had one that could answer it. <laughs> because, you know, nickel is ambiguous. A nickel right. is a five, the sun, you know, could anyway that should that seems to a human to be a very simple question and yet it turns out it isn't um why is that and i think at the allen institute they, they're working on kind of common sense and trying to get ais to pass like fifth grade science tests but why is that like what is it that humans can do that machine that we haven't figured out how to get machines to do that enables us to have common sense and them not to.
2: Right, so these are, you know, amazingly enough, uh, when when people started working in AI, they thought that the toughest tasks for computers to solve would be tasks such as doing math or, uh, you know, playing a game of chess. Uh, And they thought that the easiest ones would be the sorts of things that kids, five-year-olds, right, or seven-year-olds, are, are, uh, you know, are able to do. Uh, it turned out to be the opposite, right? It turned out that uh, the kinds of tasks that a five-year-old or seven-year-old can can do are still the tasks that are eluding uh, computers today. Uh, and a big part of that is common sense uh, reasoning, uh, and, and, uh, and that's the state of the art today, right? So uh, it's the ability to somehow, you know, so we're very good at building computers that are going to be one-track mind Types of computers, if you want, they're going to be very good at solving these very specialized tasks. And as long as they keep on giving them problems of the same type, they're going to continue to do uh, extremely well, potentially better than than human beings. But as soon as you're falling out of that that sort of uh, uh, you know well well defined space, and uh, you're opening up uh, the set of uh, uh, context and the set of problems that you're going to you presenting to computers, then you find that it's a lot more challenging to build a program that's always capable of falling back on its feet. That's that's really what we're dealing with today.
1: Well, you know, people do transfer learning very well, right? Um, we take mm-hmm. stuff that and we... With occasionally some mistakes too, right? I mean, we, we're, we're not perfect. <laughs> no, but um, we seem to, like if, if I told you, um, Picture two fish. One is uh, swimming in the ocean, and one is the same fish in formaldehyde in a laboratory. Right. Th- safe to say you haven't. You don't sit around thinking about that all day. And then I say, are they the same temperature? You would probably say no. Are they? Do they smell the same? Uh, no. Are they the same weight? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can you can answer all these questions because you have like this model, I guess, of how the world works. That's right. And, and why are we not able to, insti- yet, to instantiate that into a machine, do you think? Right. Is that just, we don't know how, or we don't have the computers, or we don't have the data, or we don't know how to, we don't know how to build an unsupervised learner, or what?
2: So there, there are multiple answers to this question. There, there are people who are of the view that it's just uh, an engineering problem. And that if in fact you know you were to use the tools that we have available today, and you just you know use them to populate these massive knowledge bases with all the facts uh, that you know that are out there, you might be able to uh, produce some of the intelligence that 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 we're missing today in computers. There's been an effort like that uh, called Psyche. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Doug Lenat, uh, and uh, he's been doing this for uh, I don't know how many years at this point. I'm thinking something like close to 30 30 plus years, and he's built uh, a massive uh, knowledge base and uh, actually with some impressive results. And at the same time, I would argue that that is probably not enough, that uh, it's more than just having all the facts. It's also the ability to adapt and the ability to uh, discover things that uh, were not necessarily pre-programmed. And that's where I think these more flexible ways of of reasoning that are also more approximate in nature and that are closer to the types of technologies that we've seen developed under uh, the umbrella of uh, neural networks and deep learning, uh, that's where I think there's a lot of uh, promise also. And so ultimately, I think we're going to need to marry these two different approaches uh, to uh, eventually get to a point where we can start mimicking some of that common sense reasoning that we human beings tend to be pretty good at.
1: So, uh, you know, kind of another sort of thing like that um, is the way children can learn. You can train them with the sample size of one. You could draw. I'm a poor draw, you know, I'm a poor artist, but I could draw a cat and then I could show that to a child and a child could identify a cat from that and and maybe an actual photograph of a cat from my pencil drawing and then you know the child could even say could maybe see one of those manx cats that doesn't have a tail and they could say look there's a cat without a tail even though they would never been told there was such a thing as a cat without a tail because it retains enough of this catness about it that it's like a cat without a tail exactly so, what is what do you think we do there that we haven't been able to teach computers?
2: Well, that that's where uh, uh, you know these uh, neural ne- network techniques are really coming into play and, and are really making a, a a big difference, right? So, it's this multi layered uh, form of processing where you're looking for different uh, levels of patterns, and uh, you're ultimately able to recognize that. You know, this is a cat. There's just a tail that, that's missing. Um, and uh, so that's where I think uh, you have that tremendous potential uh, that, you know, was not really, was, was dismissed until maybe just five years ago by many people working in AI. And all of a sudden, with the results that we start getting in, 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 in domains, such as uh, computer vision, facial recognition, natural language processing, people started saying, oh, my goodness, look at what we can do here. And I think there's a lot more of these types of results uh, that uh, we're likely to see over the years to come. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be enough to get us to that uh, general AI that we are talking about earlier, but there's certainly, uh, you know, that's certainly going to get us a step closer.
1: And we don't even know how a nematode worm encodes its thoughts, let, let alone a human. And then we have minds, we have these emergent abilities, like creativity and humor and all of these things. And we have consciousness in that we experience the world uh, and and all three of those—our brains, our minds, and consciousness—are not scientifically understood, and yet, almost That's universally, been, been tremendous
2: progress though uh, in, in this space over the past uh, twenty-five years, as I'm sure you're you aware, right?
1: Well, if if you just went with consciousness, and you—it's been called the last scientific question. Nobody even knows how to pose scientifically, nor what the answer would look like, and 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 you know. The, If I ask you what was the color of your first bicycle, you can probably answer that, but there's not like a bicycle storage area in your brain that you retrieved it from. So, I mean, we fundamentally don't know how our brains do what they do and how thoughts are encoded. And yet, universally on this show, people say we're going to be able to eventually, as you just did, eventually we'll build a general intelligence. And it, it seems to me that that conclusion is only true if you have like a purely mechanistic reductionist view. Like there's no reason to believe we're going to build a general intelligence other than we believe we are machines and therefore we can build a machine that thinks. But we don't have any independent evidence that we can build general intelligence. Like we can't even do ridiculously basic things let alone build it. And so it it's almost feels to me like an article of faith that people believe we can build it only because they believe we're machines. Would you agree with that? So I, I, I believe that, uh, first of all, it, there are
2: probably multiple ways of building general AI. Uh, and one of those ways would obviously be to replicating the machinery that we've got in our brains. And, and that's, there's certainly a lot of inspiration to be drawn from that. Uh, but it may not be the only way. Uh, and there might be variations of that that might be possible too. So I, um, so understanding the brain, I think, has has uh, inspired many people who've been working in AI, especially uh, people like Jeff Hinton and his collaborators who were referring to the University of Toronto earlier. Uh, and uh, I think that there's been tremendous progress in understanding how the brain works over the past 25, 30 years. I was just recently uh, reading uh, this book by... Uh, Eric Kendall, for instance, on uh, I think it's called In Search of Memory. And uh, it's amazing how uh, he does such a great job at recounting uh, all the progress that has been made in in this space in terms of understanding uh, intelligence and understanding memory. Uh, And and, uh, that clearly goes to the core of this issue of uh, consciousness and how do you go about understanding consciousness. Clearly, this is not a problem that we've cracked today there's been so much progress in, in showing that at the end of the day uh, you, know, you can probably uh, look at the brain as a machine that's obviously exposed to just uh, you know, such a huge number of uh, you know, contexts and situations that obviously each one of us ends up learning things a little bit differently. Uh, there's interesting work going on here at Carnegie Mellon on um, brain uh, imaging. And, 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 and reasoning to sort of understand how different types of uh, uh, intellectual activities tend to uh, result in different, you know, different types of activity patterns in the brain and, and, and so on. And there's similar research being done elsewhere uh, that can really help eliminate uh, those aspects. But again, I would not necessarily limit myself to believing that the only way to building a, a general AI will be by building an artificial brain. There might be, Uh, other ways of building this general AI, including, uh, you know, ways that might lead us to uh, building a functionality that's superior to what our human brains are capable of doing.
1: So let's switch gears and talk about um, a topic you you know in and out, which is privacy. So people who listen to this show know that I'm an optimist about the future. I believe we're going to use technology to solve all kinds of problems. But... um, but there, is, there are a couple of of chilling uh, scenarios, you know, that, that, that come out. And one of them is we've only ever had privacy in this world because there's so many of us. You can't follow everybody at once. You can't listen to every phone call uh, and all the rest. And now you can, you know, uh, cameras can read lips as well as a human. Uh, every phone call can be, and, and interestingly, the very tools we build to do good with AI, like, spot tumors are the same tools that can be used to um, spot people who disagree with the government or what have you. Tell me, do you agree that that, that AI poses a real threat to privacy? And we're just talking to US for now, for just a moment. And is there a solution to that?
2: I think that there is a solution uh, to that. And, and you've asked a number of different questions here. Uh, so I would say at, at a high level, uh, there's been an explosion in the amount of data that's available. And, and that's been a boon, obviously, to people working in machine learning and, and AI. And uh, I think we've, we've uh, all become a little drunk uh, because we've had so much of that data and, and we've, uh, we've been able to do all sorts of things that we could not even imagine being able to do uh, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, in the process, uh, we have not paid enough attention to the responsibilities that come along with having access to all these data. And the fact that uh, people, the data subjects, as they're referred to in, in regulations, uh, for instance, coming out of Europe, the people whose data has been collected have some expectations about all the data that's been collected about them should be used. And unless we align what we do with those expectations, we're going to end up uh, in, in, in a situation that's highly undesirable. And that's a lot of what we've seen, I think, over the past few years. Uh, technologists have uh, gained access to all these data, and it's been obtained with very few constraints on what they can potentially do with it, uh, to the point that they've said, well, maybe I can uh, I can start mining this thing and see whether or not I can find something useful. Uh, there's regulation. Um, the, one of the basic principles behind privacy is that uh, when you collect data, uh, you should be collecting that data for a specific purpose. And, uh, and ideally, you would want to Uh, make sure that the person whose data is being collected is okay with that uh, collection and okay with the use in which that data is going to be uh, processed. And if all of a sudden you take that data and start using it for an entirely different purpose, you should probably go back to that person and and verify that that uh, person, that data subject, is also okay with that other use. That's not something that we see very often today, especially here uh, in the U.S. Um, But we've seen progress, right? So We've seen progress. So... Uh, You know, you you have to recognize that uh, including companies that are in the press for, you know, for for issues with privacy such as Facebook or Google, these companies have made an effort in in offering users uh, better control over the processing of their data, making more permissions available in the context of apps, making more settings available in the context of browsers, being uh, more transparent about the data that they've uh, collected about us and, and the like but it's also clear that uh, not too many people engage with this functionality. Uh, There are privacy policies out there that in principle disclose some of the things I was talking about, but nobody has the time to read these privacy policies. Nobody has the time to configure all these settings. And so one of the things uh, my group and I have been advocating is actually the use of AI to help people regain control over uh, their data, the collection and use of their data, and help them, in fact, deal with all these privacy policies that they, on their own, with their limited human brains don't have the time to read, uh, help them configure settings, help them make better privacy decisions, so that at the end of the day, what takes place is better aligned with what they feel comfortable with.
1: So you're, you're specifically talking there about the legal requirements of private enterprises with their relationship to their customers, making those more transparent and more user configurable without and make that easy for people to do. Um, and, and so do you envision something like a GDPR for data that kind of rigidly defines this and criminalizes certain actions and all of that, or how would you, how would you do that? Or is it vol completely voluntary by these companies or, or, or what, what, from a practical standpoint, do you suggest?
2: Well, first of all, there are, there are many dimensions to this, right? So, I, in general, I don't think it's a good idea for a company to be doing something with the data of their customers that their customers would not feel comfortable with, right? So, it, it's not good a good business practice if one day your customer finds out that you've been using their data in a way that… Just-
0: right,
1: but the customer isn't really… Uh- A homogenous unit, right? Like there's a million customers, and some are fine with anything, and some are incredibly sensitive, and then there's a big part in the middle. So, yes, uh, how does a company even navigate that?
2: Well, that's a very good point. That's why privacy is complex, and that's why you cannot, uh, you know. So, privacy is not black and white. We've done a lot of work on modeling people's privacy preferences, and we've seen exactly what you've pointed out. uh, You know, domain after domain after domain that uh, it's not one-size-fits-all. If it was one-size-fits-all, it would be great. It would be easy to regulate. It would be like, well, nobody feels comfortable with that, therefore you shouldn't do it. And Nobody feels comfortable with that, therefore it's okay to do it. End of the story. Uh, but the vast majority of people fall between these two extremes, and, and they've got different views. It, it varies based on, you know, uh, for instance, are you willing to share all your health data with the world? Well, uh, there are people who feel that they're very healthy and have no, nothing to hide, and they're, they don't care, and there are people who've got medical conditions, and if this uh, information was potentially falling in their own hands, they may not be able to get uh, insurance coverage anymore, and so they do care, right? And these things vary quite a bit from one person to another, and, you know, this is just one example, but where you go, right, uh, uh, who your friends are, sexual orientation, all these sorts of things, right, you're going to find uh, very different views on what people are willing to disclose and what they're not willing to disclose, and with whom and for what purpose and so on. Uh, and so there is this inherent tension uh, between privacy and usability, right? So if, if you want to allow people to control what happens to their data, you need to give them all these potential settings and, 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 and configurations that they've got to uh, select from. And that's clearly not uh, you know very practical. Uh, we've gone down this path. If you look today at a mobile app user, Right? You, most people have today something like 50 apps on their cell phones, if not more. If these apps require you know, access to two or three permissions, like your location, your calendar, uh, you know, texting, or what have you, uh, and you, before you know it, you've got to configure a hundred different settings just for mo- the mobile apps on your cell phone, nobody has the time to do that. Right? And so one of the things we've shown is that uh, using machine learning, we can actually do a pretty good job at very quickly learning people's privacy preferences. And we can then help them configure many of these settings without imposing as heavy a burden on them as you would otherwise with the settings that are available today. We've shown that we can automatically le- read the text of privacy policies on their behalf and actually highlight things they would want to know about. Uh, and so those are ways in which AI, as it turns out, which is often uh, you know, being depicted as being uh, you know, the antithesis of privacy, uh, AI can actually contribute. Uh, to uh, uh, restoring uh, some uh, modicum of privacy and empowering people to better control their data, so that's one of the things our group is well known for. Never answered your question about GDPR, but I've already spoken for quite a bit, so I'll, I'll let you decide whether you want to redirect.
1: Well, I would ask uh, slightly different. You know, I, I get what you're saying that in a in a in a country that has rule of law and transparency and in a country like the United States, those sorts of protections can be legislated and businesses will to more or less extent, follow those and, and, and all the rest. Are you concerned with the application of this technology in other countries that don't have, you know, by states, by governments against their own people that don't actually have any notion of, you know, individual privacy being a, a, a right? I'm
2: very concerned. I I am among those people who think that privacy is a fundamental human right. Uh, It is uh, definitely part of the the UN uh, Charter of Human Rights. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I, I am very concerned about what you see in, uh, you know, countries where, uh, you know, I mean, let's name them, right? Countries like China or or Russia or or, uh, countries where people have even fewer uh, uh, freedoms. Uh, I'm also very concerned about what we're seeing here. Uh, in the US. I mean, we've seen privacy you know, for a long time was depicted as, OK, well, this is about you know, whether or not people will use your data to decide what ads they're going to target to you. That's uh, such a mundane problem. Uh, but we've seen that uh, privacy goes well beyond that. So privacy uh, you know, uh, extends to manipulation of uh, uh, the information that we see, manipulation of opinion, manipulation of elections. Right? And I think that people have come to realize this and they've come to realize that, hey, this, this privacy thing is actually a lot bigger than I realized. And it does go to, you know, the the, the the fundamentals of who we are as a country, as a society and so on.
1: It's just an almost intractable problem, it seems, because privacy is a nebulous idea and the presumption of privacy uh varies by circumstance. I mean, I would expect I would have more privacy in the medical field than I would in at an amusement park or something. It varies from person to person. And people themselves don't really necessarily know what they want or not. And you can ask a question in such a way that they're like, oh I guess I'm okay with that. Uh, And you could ask the same question in a way where they would be like, no, that sounds creepy, but it's the same same thing. And and so it, it almost feels like as noble as what you're trying to do. It's almost an intractable problem. So, so, give me some reason to to think I'm probably wrong with that—that that it is a solvable problem.
2: Well, I would argue you could say the same thing about security. Uh, it doesn't mean so. It's not because something is challenging and complex that you want to give up. Uh, you know, and uh, can self regulation get you there? We've tried that for uh, you know the past twenty years or so, or if not longer. And I think we've seen what 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 where we are today. Uh, So I do feel that there's a need for regulation uh, in this space. I think that uh, uh, these are very complex problems. And you were pointing, for instance, the fact that you can manipulate people. We've done research on that. uh, And uh, we've shown that, indeed, uh, people's privacy preferences are highly malleable. uh, Depending on how you ask people a question, you're going to get a very different answer. Uh, So does this mean that you should not let people control these things and not let them make decisions? No, it means you've got to uh, impose requirements in terms of how you go about asking these questions, right? You can you can phrase uh, questions about whether or not people are willing to grant you access to some data in a way that everybody is going to say yes, right? So for a while, for instance, we were talking about mobile apps earlier, right? Uh, early versions of Android uh, were basically asking people privacy questions at the time they were downloading the apps on their cell phone. Uh, it's well known that, Uh, you know, we all have cognitive and behavioral biases that will lead us to always favor the short-term rewards over the long-term, less obvious consequences. And so if you download, you know, your favorite game app and, you know, at the time you're downloading this app, someone says, and by the way, are you willing to grant Angry Bird access to your location? And, you know, this and that, uh, the vast majority of people are going to say yes. On the other hand, if you ask that question differently and at a different point in time, or you give people a chance to revisit uh, this decision that they've made perhaps by telling them that hey uh, by the way you know your location has been collected by your apps you know 7398 times over the past week uh, and uh, you know if you'd like to know more click here and you can review the permissions that you've granted different apps people will respond very differently and so those are actually uh, not random examples these are technologies that we've piloted uh, with great success uh, and with people, converging towards settings that were much closer to their comfort level.
1: You know, there's a, there's a box that has a name, and I'm, I can't remember it, but uh, it was a law passed some number of years ago that said every credit card offer has to have this box on the back, and the box has to say what is the annual fee, what is the APR, what, and, and it was a finite list of things. And you see it in every credit card offer you get. You know you can just flip that thing over, and you see those things. Is there an equivalent for privacy that we could do that there's like these eight things? Do we retain personally identifiable information about you? Do we share that? I mean, is there a list like that that you could simplify?
2: There are are some things like that, that, that you could do. The difference, I believe, between credit cards and, you know, computer technologies in general is that there are just so many more scenarios, right? So many different ways in which your data can be collected and used, that it's very hard to reduce things down to eight boxes. But eight boxes would already be better than than nothing, no question. Uh, The boxes, so we've actually experimented with these sorts of things, right? We've conducted experiments where we've shown people entire privacy policies, we've shown them summary of privacy policies, we've shown them, uh, you know, information extracted from privacy policies in different boxes, played with the number of boxes that you show to people. And there is a sweet spot, right? So if, if you show them too much information, they stop reading. If you, you show them too little, they get surprised by things you didn't have you know, enough space to, to show them. Uh, the kinds of things that people care about do vary also. And they vary at least based on two things, right? They vary based on what people already know and expect. Right, so if you tell me that there's a camera that's watching me when I go through a TSA line, guess what? I'm not terribly surprised. I think I've got, you know, I think I've known that for a while, and so that may not necessarily be something that you need to tell me. Uh, On the other hand, if you tell me that there's a camera that's looking at me when I go shopping at my supermarket, I would probably want to know about that the first time, and and then maybe after a while, I might decide that, hey, every supermarket is doing that these days, and you know, this doesn't seem to be terribly traumatic, and something I need to worry about too much, but different people So there's clearly a need to personalize also how you go about doing this. There is no way that you can get that sweet spot with a one size fits all format. And that's where again, uh, you know, AI and machine learning can come and help because I can build models about what you know and what you care about and how often you would want to be notified about different types of practices. When you walk into a room that has uh, facial recognition when you, you know pass by some uh, uh, you know sensors that collect your location, uh, all these sorts of things, different people have different views about that. And so knowing how you feel about these things and how you want to be notified and how often can help me build technology that will do a better job at keeping you informed without fe- feeling uh, overwhelmed and without feeling like you should turn off this functionality because it keeps on beeping every two minutes.
1: You know, It sounds like what you're thinking about, or do you think about it this way, that like I could ask you 20 questions um, that aren't technical. Like, is it okay for advertisers to use what you've purchased in the past to recommend products to you? And I could do like 20 questions like that that anybody could answer. They go, yeah, I guess that's okay. And from that, you could infer with AI a range of things about what I find acceptable and not, and then map those to every site I visit. Is that right. how you think about it? So we've, we've built that.
2: Uh, we call these privacy assistants. Uh, we have one that's in the Google Play Store for uh, mobile app permissions. The unfortunate thing is that you need to have a rooted Android phone for it to work. But it does work very well. Uh, and so people who've used it uh, have all reported that they had uh, a much better sense of control and they had convergence settings that were much better aligned with their preferences. So, yes. And we actually don't ask 20 questions. We ask between three and five questions. Wow. And so we to predict about I've, 80% of your settings.
1: I've gone over because this is such a fascinating topic. I, I would like to close with one last question, though, about uh, we were talking about state actors. Um, and, and what I find disturbing is that some of them are productizing their ability to spy on their own citizens and export and selling that to other oppressive regimes that couldn't even develop it on their own. Is that something that you don't worry about in the long run because you're like, in the end, free societies will win? Or is that something where this technology will be used by people in power to retain their power in certain parts of the world?
2: I'm very concerned about that. And I think it could be, in all parts of the world, potentially, if you're, you know, a bit paranoid. Um, yes, I think I'm very concerned about that. I, I uh, And so how do you solve this? It's a very challenging problem, right? Because these technologies are available uh, and, uh, you know, and there are some good uses for these technologies, right? I mean, terrorism is a real problem. Uh, national security, <laughs> I mean, uh, when it comes to privacy, one question where, uh, you know, the vast majority of people feel the same insecurity, security, right? When it comes to security, a lot of people are willing to disclose quite a bit of information uh, to ensure their security. Not necessarily everything, but quite a bit of information. Right? And so these tools, these technologies are, are legitimate technologies. But as you pointed out, the challenge is how do you prevent governments that are not legitimate governments, totalitarian regimes, from using these very same technologies for entirely different purposes? And so obviously I don't know how you do that. I mean, I, I don't know, how do you get the regime to not be a totalitarian regime? That's clearly not <laughs> a technical right. question. The thing not- is,
1: is they would say they only use them for security. That's they just happen to that's believe do, that right? anyone who opposes the regime is a threat to security. But anyway, that's okay. We don't have to solve everything in this one uh, interview. I want to thank you so much for your time and all the work you're doing. It sounds like it's much needed, Like We're finally done this enough that we kind of know, we're starting to know like these are the pitfalls and here's a way to solve them. And it sounds like what you're doing is at the forefront of that. So I thank you uh, for your work.
2: Well, Baron, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.